Our scripture this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that do you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, happy Sunday. First, uh, I almost said first Sunday in June. Boy, I need a calendar. I need a calendar and a nap. Uh, it's good to be with you all. My name is Reed, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community Lathe Campus. And yeah, it's a joy to be with you all. And, uh, and as Jonathan Neef mentioned, just again as a heads up, um, we are covering the vice of lust this morning, uh, or as I call it, the help people stay awake in church initiative. Uh, so we'll, it's helpful. Uh, eight o'clock, they were up, they were, anyway, but, um, but, but in, all, in all seriousness, uh, th- this is a topic that we want to give attention to, uh, we want to address thoughtfully and, and, and sensitively. And so if you do have young kiddos here, we're glad they're here. We just want to make sure that you are using discretion as they're here. There is a Kids Connect uh, that kind of uh, follows the content of the sermon. Uh, so we'd love for you to, to be thinking about, yeah, how do we engage in conversation with our, our young people? And so, yeah, just wanted to make sure there was a heads up on that. But, um, but I mean, I, I, I joke and jest here, but in all seriousness, this is. It's an important topic for us to address. And, and there may be some of us who are thinking, why are we talking about sex and lust? I mean, this is church for crying out loud, you know? And, and, and I, I want us to understand that, like, sex is, is such an important topic for us to think about for so many reasons, uh, and, and one of which I think is expressed so well by the, the novelist and essayist uh, Wendell Berry, uh, who says this. He says that sex, like any other necessary, precious, and volatile power that is commonly held, is everybody's business. It's everybody's business because we, we tend to think that sex, well, sex is just sex. I mean, why should we get all bent out of shape? I mean, why should we be concerned about what's taking place between two consenting adults? And, and we all know that sex is not just sex, that this is a topic that we need to give time and attention to for so many reasons. And one of which is that our culture, we as a people, we're confused about sex. I mean, you even see it in the way that there's kind of these competing narratives about sex, that, that in some sense, sex is everything. It's, that, is that it's what we desire, it's what we crave, it's what we think will deliver us, it's our ultimate good, and that's what we're aiming for. But on, in another sense, sex is nothing. You know, sex is just sex. It's just this physical activity. And it really, there's no meaning behind it. It's just a physiological urge that we have to engage in. And so clearly we see there's confusion in our culture about what sex is, what its purpose and design is. And so sex is not just sex, and we know that. I mean, even just from a physiological standpoint, before we even bring Scripture into it, sex is about the bonding of two people and the making of babies. So what's at stake here is love and life. And so even without the Bible, that, that warrants a significant conversation. And so why are we talking about sex? It is vital for us. And, and, and here's the thing. I would be a bad pastor if I didn't talk about sex. 
If we never address this, if we just kind of glossed over it, I would be a bad pastor if I neglected or ignored this central part of of what it means to be human in many ways. And so we want to spend some time thinking about this issue as we address the vice of lust and the virtue of chastity. And so if if you've been with us, or even if you haven't, we've been going through vices and virtues, and we come today to the vice of lust. And what I hope we will come to see, and what I want all of us to to really aim for together, is that each and every one of us, my prayer is that we would long for more than what lust desires. That each and every one of us would long for more than what lust desires. And so before we jump in, I want to pray uh, for our time together. Uh, So I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray for your blessing on the teaching of your word. Lord, we thank you that your word speaks to every aspect of life. Lord, we thank you that, that your word reveals to us who you are and who we are in light of you. And so, Lord, would you give us clarity of mind? Lord, would you give us conviction? Would you give us an understanding of this vice and this virtue and how we live in light of your design? Lord, would you bless the teaching of your word? May it be honoring to you and edifying and encouraging to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, one thing I do want to say just kind of at the beginning here is that I, I want to make sure when we talk about lust, lust is not to be seen simply as just sexual desire. Sometimes we tend to think that's just what it is. Lust is just sexual desire. That's not the issue. It's more than just simply having sexual desire because sexual desire is good. It's God-given. Sex is not this disgusting thing, and, and we kind of have this, this competing narrative in some ways. Like, on one end, like I said, sex is God. It's this great thing, the ultimate good. And, and sometimes the church has been guilty of, of trying to overcorrect that view by going all the way over here and saying, like, sex is gross. You know, we, we say it's like, it's this disgusting, vile thing, and you better wait until you're in love to do it. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense, you know? And so how do we make sense of where's the balance between sex is God, sex is gross, and I think we have to see that sex is a gift given by God. It was his idea from the beginning. And so we have to see it as God's design. So, so what is lust? When we say lust, what do we mean? And I would define lust in this way, that lust is sexual desire on a one-way street. Lust is sexual desire on a one-way street. And what I mean by that is that essentially lust, the, the vice of lust, is when we have sexual desire that is purely interested in our own good and gain either at the expense or the exclusion of another person. And, and there's a lot we can unpack with that, but I want us to see that, that lust is not just sexual desire. It is sexual desire in a one-way street that removes the other person in some way, shape, or form. And so as we think about all the vices, this is true of all of them, that, that the vice of lust is no exception, that it is about desire that has been misplaced or misappropriated, that it has been, it's desiring things in, in the wrong fashion or in the wrong direction. And lust very much is a great example of that. And so I want us to see that because lust is more than just sexual desire, we, have to, we, we can't just simply erode it down to sexual desire because there's so much more at play. And so I want us, before we jump into understanding lust and the vice that it is, I think it's important for us to first see sex as a gift that we should desire. Sex is a gift that we should desire. And as I mentioned, sex is God's idea. We shouldn't be bashful about it. We shouldn't ignore it or, or just treat it like it's forbidden fruit. How do we talk about it in a way that is healthy, right, and good? And so sex is God's idea. He came up with it. I mean, when you see Adam and Eve in the garden, I mean, God gives Adam to Eve and he gives Eve to Adam. 
And, and Adam, what does he do when he sees Eve? He does like what every guy does. He gets out a guitar and writes a song. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's in love with this woman. That's not true. There wasn't a guitar, but you, you get the idea. But, but Adam sees this woman and, and they become one. And that's not just a metaphor, although it is, but it is a picture of what, what intimacy, of sexual intimacy looks like. Adam and Eve enjoyed sex together as God designed it. Scripture is also emphatic in, in, in teaching that uh, the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7 that, that husbands and wives should be intentional in making love together. And so if, you, if you're struggling with Scripture memory, this is a great one to start with. It'll probably motivate your Scripture memory. But in, in 1 Corinthians 7, this is what the Apostle Paul says. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. Scripture is clear that sexual desire is not the problem. It's the corruption of those desires, which is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, which, which is the process of being made holy, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. The command is to not diminish or to deny sexual desire. The command is to flee sexual immorality, the corruption of that which God has declared good. And the Bible is clear on this. And so when, 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 when Paul says flee sexual immorality, there's this assumption that there's a standard of sexual morality. There's a standard of sexual goodness that we should celebrate and recognize and work towards. And so what I want us to see, the scriptures are clear, the pursuit of sex is good, it is right, and godly even. But just like all things, we cannot understand how good something is until we understand what it was designed for. Like, like I mean, I could, use, I could use my cell phone as a comb, but that's not how it was designed. It's like, this is a terrible comb. Well, that's not what it was designed for. The same way, we can't understand the goodness of sex until we know what sex was designed for. And so the pursuit of sex is good, but it's only when it's understood in the right purpose and in the right place. The pursuit of sex is good, but when it comes to the purpose and place, that's where there's confusion. And so I've used this analogy a lot before, but, but think of fire. If I were to ask you, is fire good? It all depends on the place and the purpose of fire. Like fire in a fireplace is good. Fire in a fire not place is bad. It's date, like on my arm, that's bad, you know? And, and so it all comes down to the place and the purpose. What are you using the fire for? To what end? How are you using it? So the pursuit of sex likewise is good, but it comes down to the purpose and the place. And, and while so much more can be said about God's design for sex, I mean, what we see in Scripture is that God has given this gift to be enjoyed and experienced within the, the, the context of covenant love, of, of marriage between a man and a woman. And when we go out of that confines, what we find is that it's not, it's not that we find greater freedom, but we're actually constricted when we try to limit our boundaries, which we'll get to in a second. But I want us to see first and foremost, sex is a gift that we should desire. Now that we understand that, let's jump into what we mean by lust. So what is lust? Lust actually, I believe, is a vice that desires too little. Which sounds backwards because you're like, well, lust is about desire. It's craving. You know, it's this, it's this overwhelming feeling of I want something. But how on earth do we define vi uh, uh, lust in this way? That it desires too little. That doesn't seem to make sense. And, and what I mean by that is that while, while lust is an unhealthy desire for sex and pleasure, 
What it actually is, is something less than what sex is. It, it wants something that is less than what sex is. And it desires something less than what sex provides. Now, the common view of lust and sex, for that matter, is that it's not that big of a deal. Like, seriously, like, why, why are we getting so bent out of shape of what people do kind of in their own time, two consenting adults, or what I do behind closed doors? Why should you care about that? Why does that impact you? Get over it. That's not a big deal. But the thing we have to understand is that, that lust is, is a communal vice. It is a corporate vice. And in fact, all these vices are. We know that the vices that we find ourselves guilty of bleed out into our relationships and impact the culture that we're in. And so when we say that sex is no big deal, lust is no big deal, why should we care about this? We're failing to see that, that we are a part of a, a, so to speak, a global economy of sex. And when we fail to understand the impacts of our individual sexual decisions and how they impact others, we are blind to the power of this vice. And there's a phenomenal video uh, put out by the Austin Institute, um, uh, the, the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. And the video is called The Economics of Sex. And they, they pinpoint, and I encourage you to watch the video, it's great, but there's a segment that I want us to see in understanding that sex is not just sex, and it is not just things happening between two consenting adults, there's more at play. So let's look at the eco economics of sex. Women have something of value that men want. Badly. Something men are actually willing to sacrifice for. So how much does sex cost for men? It might cost them nothing but a few drinks and compliments. Or a month of dates and respectful attention. Or all the way up to <gasps> a lifetime Ooh. promise to share all of his affections, wealth, and earnings with her exclusively. The price varies widely. But if women are the gatekeepers, why don't very many women charge more, so to speak? Because pricing is not entirely up to women. The market value of sex is part of a social system of exchange, an economy, if you will, wherein men and women learn from each other. And from others. What they ought to expect from each other sexually. So sex is not entirely a private matter between two consenting adults. Think of it as basic. Supply and demand. When supplies are high, prices drop. Since people won't pay more for something that's easy to find. But if it's hard to find, people will pay a premium. And the same rings true with sex. Men know that sex is cheap these days, if they know where to look. I, th that's, I, I show that video not to try to just like erode sex down to economic terms. That sounds really crass. But I want us to see that, that what we see is that what's taking place in our world is that we are, as the video said, we're learning from each other and from others about what to expect in intimate, loving relationships. And when it comes to sex, we're learning from other people. And so our individual private decisions are not individual private decisions. They impact and lead into our culture. And so the seriousness of this vice cannot be overstated. It, it is a vice that has deep hooks that, that really grab us and, and hold us in very strong ways and have long-lasting effects in ways that we don't fully realize. And so the, the thing that I want to be clear about, <clears throat> excuse me, is that when we think of the vice of lust, we, we tend to think it, it's, it's really just people who, who are tempted to fall into adulterous relationships or, or it's people who are, who are single and engaging in, in sexual morality or it's people who are uh, addicted to pornography. And, and while all those things are forms of sexual morality, the thing that we have to understand is that lust can take place. This vice can grow very, very strong in healthy monogamous relationships. 
Because again, lust is a vice on, that is all about sexual desire on a one-way street. It is a desire that removes the other person. It is, it is a vice that says, I want this, even if it means at the expense or the exclusion of you. Vice, this vice of lust can take place in healthy monogamous relationships, and the reason why is because lust desires too little because it doesn't desire the other. At the heart of what lust is, that's really what it is, is that lust desires too little because it doesn't desire the other. The vice of lust, it often leaves us empty and hollow because what we've done is that we have exchanged God's, given, God's gift of sexual desire, a good gift that is meant to be shared. We tend to see sex primarily as a gift to be received, to be enjoyed. And while that's true, it is also a gift that must be shared. And when we see lust and we see sexual desire through the lens of what's in it for me, we go down the slippery slope of the vice of lust where we expect our needs to be met over the needs of the other. And that is where it gets dangerous. Lust is all about manufacturing our own selfish desire and seeking to have our own needs met, again, at the expense or the exclusion of the other person. With lust, my pleasure is the end game. And I will play that game however I want, whenever I want, and with whomever I want. When we remove the other person and their needs and their affection and their feelings, we are diminishing sex. And we're actually getting less from sex than what it was designed to give. And so that's why lust, in its cravings, ends up getting less. Lust is a vice that desires too little because it doesn't desire the other person. Rebecca DeYoung, we've referenced her before in her book, Glittering Vices, and talking about lust, she says this, I think it's a really helpful way to categorize this. Lustful sex makes the other person instrumental to getting what I want. They makes the other person instrumental to getting what I want. Lust wants it, while proper love desires a beloved person. Lust aims for the antithesis of real intimacy. Now, lust could, could actually be described as, as sexual bulimia. And, and what I mean by that is that when we desire sex without the regard for the other person, when the desire for intimacy in its truest sense in a relationship, when that is disregarded, it's like chewing food and then spitting it out. You get the flavor of it, but you don't get the nourishment that that food was intended to provide for you. When sexual desire is the only thing that's driving intimacy in a relationship, it's sexual bulimia. It's getting the flavor, spitting it out, and you're actually robbing yourself of the nourishment that sex was designed for. Why? Because just like food, food was not created simply to taste good but to provide for us, to take care of us, to nourish us, and sex is the same way. This is why when it comes to sex, we must long for more than what sex desires. We must, or we must long for more than what lust desires. And perhaps no other tool used by our enemy, the devil, perhaps no other tool is more effective in increasing sexual desire and decreasing the desire for the other than pornography. Pornography, perhaps, is one of the most pernicious forms that our enemy uses to, to belittle and to diminish the joy of sex. And it's, it's so strange because in pornography, aren't we getting more of sex? Aren't we getting more imagery? Aren't we getting more ideas? And actually, through this pathway, we find that sexual desire does not increase but actually decreases, and the joy of sex is diminished more and more. While pornography is a perverted form of entertainment, I believe that the, the worst 
work that pornography does is and how it is a pernicious form of education. Porn, yes, is a perverted form of entertainment, but even more than that, it is a pernicious form of education. What I mean is that pornography has become the standard for sex, for love, for intimacy, for beauty. So much so that that is the standard that we are now measuring all of our relationships by. It has become such a staple in our culture that it is the standard of good sex. And when I experience something that doesn't match up with what I've seen in pornography, there must be something wrong with me or there's probably something wrong with you. And that is where lust's hooks stick into us even deeper. And one thing to be very clear about, when we talk about pornography, it's not it's not a male issue exclusively. I know sometimes that's kind of the, the, the common view, but there are many studies that have come out. There's one out of BYU that showed actually that one out of every three visits to a pornographic site is, is a female. And, and what they're finding is that what's driving women to pornographic sites and content, while there is a sense in which gratification is part of it, what, what is largely driving women to pornography is research. Is, is learning, okay, I want a man, I want to be in a relationship, so what does a man want? He wants sex, and what kind of sex does he want? He wants pornographic sex, so I'm going to learn what he wants and, and it develop and determine my standard of sex through this perverted form of education. And what we find is that we are living in a culture where intimacy and love is no longer the standard, but pornography is now the standard for intimacy and love. Pornography is, is forming and shaping us in ways that we don't fully recognize. It's defining and, and creating the standard of love and intimacy and beauty. And what it's doing is not only is it, is it perverting our standards of goodness, but it is undermining our ability to have meaningful sex and, and meaningful relationships. There, there was a, an article that came out in the New York Magazine um, by Naomi Wolf. It was called The Porn Myth. And, and she talks about, in this article, several decades ago, there was kind of the, the talk about what, what is the future of pornography, and there was this prediction that pornography would become just a wide staple in our culture. It would be so common, so ubiquitous, everybody would have access to it, and the prediction was that because of that, men would become sexual predators and beasts, that it would be this dangerous society we live in. And while, while the former aspect is true, that it is a staple in our world, the latter isn't necessarily true. That what we found is that with, with the market, so to speak, being flooded with pornography, what has happened is not so much this increase in sexual desire and drive, but there's been this diminished joy in real sex because of what pornography has done to us. And in the article, Naomi Wolf says this, for most of human history, erotic images have been reflections of or celebrations of or substitutes for real naked women. For the first time in human history, the image's power and allure have supplanted, that, uh, have supplanted that of real naked women. Today, real naked women are just bad porn. That's what's happened in our culture. The pornography has become such the standard that everything else is measured by it. And so we have such growing levels of dissatisfaction in sexual relationships because there has been a flooding in the market of this pernicious and perverted form of sexual education known as pornography. The vice of lust has successfully made pornography the standard of sex, of intimacy and beauty. And in so doing, it has created a culture of sexual desire on a one-way street. And so when we see pornography in this way, we cannot claim that it is a victimless crime. 
We cannot say this is just something that I do in close, behind closed doors. It's a private thing. What I do does not impact you. And here, here's, the, here's the reality. If, if you, we, I've talked about this before, but, but um, you know, there's, there's a lot of passion about fighting things like human trafficking and sex slavery in our world. And that is the thing that we should fight for. And, and there's a lot of research that has come out that's basically said that, that if you want, uh, you want to find a real practical way to fight sex trafficking, stop looking at pornography. Stop fueling and feeding this, this beast that creates a demand. I mean, there's a direct correlation between sex trafficking and child prostitution in Thailand and your private consumption of pornography in Kansas. We are all in a global economy of sex and we don't realize it. We have to see that this vice of lust that is attacking us primarily in many ways, but one way is through pornography, it is desensitizing us to real intimacy and relationships. And it's dehumanizing those that we are in relationship with. That we now see people as opportunities, as commodities to be consumed. And that's happening in sexual relationships, but even beyond sexual relationships. And so when we understand it in this way, we have to see that lust in the end, it desires too little because it doesn't desire the other person. And as a result, lust gives us less than what we want, and it ends up making us less than who we want to be, which is why we do. We need to long for more than what lust desires. We need to desire more than what lust is craving. And the way we do this, one of the ways we do this, is by practicing the virtue of chastity. And, and I, I realize even saying it, that, that chastity, uh, it, it's a virtue that sounds, it's better than what it sounds, okay? Because, but even when I say chastity, it sounds medieval. It sounds antiquated. Like, I mean, you even think, like, when I say the word chastity, what's the word that follows that? Chastity belt. Exactly. You're, you're, you're right there. Like, it's just this medieval, out of date, like, really chastity? Like, that's what we're practicing here? And what we have to understand is that chastity is not simply about restraint, it's not simply about holding back or putting limitations on sexual desire, but rather chastity needs to be understood as it has historically been taught that chastity is the wisdom of wholeness. Chastity is the wisdom of wholeness. It has less to do with limitations and more to do with balance. It's understanding that, that chastity in giving us boundaries is not limiting our joy and limiting sexual desire, but it's channeling it properly that it might be enjoyed in the correct way. And so we tend to think, no, putting limitations on us, that's preventing me from happiness and joy. But it's the boundaries that actually allow us to see sex properly. Uh, in our old house, I was um, putting a, a frame, around. we had this big mirror in our bathroom, and there was no frame, it's just this giant piece of glass, you know, reflective glass, and I decided to put kind of a wood frame around it. And by putting this frame around it, I made the mirror smaller, but in so doing, it actually made the mirror look bigger. By putting a boundary and a, and a parameter around it, the mirror looked larger. Things looked brighter for some reason, even though the mirror was smaller in the same way chastity in giving us boundaries and guidelines doesn't limit sexual desire. It channels it in a proper fashion, which is why the Apostle Paul in verse 4 and 5 says, each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, there's some debate about what Paul means here when he says uh, to, to control your body. Some translations say uh, that, that you, a man should acquire a wife for himself, which is like, what does that even mean? And, and it's kind of confusing. Uh, we're not quite sure exactly what Paul's getting at, but what we do know, the heart of what he's saying is essentially this, 
that at the heart of what Paul is giving us in this instruction is that when lust roams free, when sexual desire roams free without any boundaries or guidelines, we actually find ourselves enslaved. That when we desire more without limitation, we are actually limiting our joy and undermining our happiness in both sexual intimacy and relational intimacy. Essentially, what we have is this pleasure paradox that that the more I crave and seek after sex without any, any limitation, the less I actually get from sex. By demanding and desiring the pleasure of sex so greatly, we actually weaken our ability to enjoy meaningful relationships and meaningful sex. And in so doing, we undermine our happiness. Now, when we understand chastity in that way, it frames it differently. It's not limiting. It's not keeping us from goodness, but rather channeling it a proper way that we might be able to enjoy it as God designed. Chastity is not a virtue that, that keeps us from pleasure. On the contrary, it prepares us and allows us to experience sex and intimacy in the way that God designed it. Because when we turn to sex, or any, anything for that matter, when we turn to sex to become this, this, this good thing, when we turn it from a good thing into a God thing, that is when problems arise. It is the misordering of loves. And when we turn to sex to be our God, to be our deliverer, we immediately dilute the joy that we find in it. And we all know this experience. Like we all know like the, just the common teaching that your mom taught you that, that like too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Like for me, like I love authentic like street tacos. Like I love them. If you've never been to Bonito Michoacan on Santa Fe and Ridgeview, you're missing out people, okay? But I love, I mean, and I've said, I could eat street tacos forever, like for every single meal. And I know that's not true because if I did, not only would I get sick, I would actually get sick of the tacos, the very thing that I love. By removing all limitations and boundaries, I actually diminish and remove the joy of the thing that I love so much. And so that's why temperance and chastity is important when it comes to sexual desire. It is not a limiter. It is actually a catalyst that increases our ability to enjoy sex and intimacy. Now, I'm sure a question is probably bubbling up in your mind is that, okay, we understand this. All right, covenant marriage relationship, we get that. Okay, we should be desiring the good of the other person. But how do we think about sexual desire and lust and chastity when it comes to those who are single, when it comes to those who, who are, for our teenagers, who aren't in these relationships where they can experience sex as God designed it, how do we speak to that issue? And, and I don't want to diminish that challenge by any means, but one of the things we have to understand is that there is a desire behind sexual desire. And we know this because really what we want, while there are physical needs, while there are our physical desires, what we want ultimately and fundamentally is to be known, is to be loved, is to have intimacy in its truest sense, not simply to have sexual desires gratified. While that is important, the desire behind sexual desire is to be known, which is why the Bible uses the word know as a verb to describe the act of sexual intercourse. Because there's more than just physical activity taking place. It is intimacy. It is oneness. It is wholeness. It is completion. And so, yes, while we do have physical desires for sex, behind that desire is the desire for relationship, for community, for oneness and intimacy. There was an article in Relevant Magazine. It was a really helpful way to kind of frame this conversation on sexuality and singleness. And in it, I, I mean, I found the article really intriguing and also just convicting 
Uh, And in it, the article says this, if sexuality at its core expresses our longing for love and our desire to connect intimately with others, we need to reclaim the words love and intimacy. Just like we tend to think of sexuality immediately and mistakenly as only the act of having sex, so too our language of love and intimacy needs to be rescued from the clutches of a highly eroticized world. The article goes on to say, kind of speaking on behalf of single people, we may need to be listened to, we may need someone to laugh with, we may need company. These are needs, sexual needs broadly defined, that the church should be ready to meet with joy. And so a question that we should all ask ourselves is, how are we as a church, as a family, seeking to to meet the needs of all people, the needs of intimacy, the needs of relationship and connection and being known? How are we being a church that is not bringing down our sexual ethic or, or trying to diminish sex, but actually saying, no, sex is more than just the physical act. Sexual desire is ultimately about the desire for intimacy and relationship. How are we as a church addressing this issue? And I think in many ways, I think we are misguided if we fail to see genuine friendship and community as a way to address sexual desire. Because there's so much more about sex than just sex. We all long for relationships. This is why we must long for more than what lust desires. So how do we, how do we grow in chastity? What, what does this virtue look like practically? And so let me just, let me just share a few things for us to consider. Uh, some of these you may resonate with more than others, but the first is this, is that we need to shine light on this vice. The vice of lust, li- like all sin really, is, is like a fungus. It grows in the dark. And so what we need in order to to defeat this vice is to shine more light on it so that there are others who are invited into this conversation. So so if you find that you are entrapped in this vice of lust, whether through pornographic addiction, whether if you are in an adulterous relationship or tempted to be so, if you find yourself getting into sexual morality of all kinds, shine light by inviting others into that conversation. Secrecy and isolation are one of the greatest tools that the, the devil uses to keep this vice strong. So invite others in, and, and because when we keep silent, it eats away at us, which is why the psalmist in Psalm 32, 2 says this, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Shine light, invite others into this conversation that you might not suffer alone in this. Second, and, and this is just really helpful wisdom, is just set boundaries. Think about where you're tempted. Where are you vulnerable? Where does temptation take place? Is it in a certain situation, a time of day? Is it a certain place? Is it within a certain relationship? Where are you vulnerable? Where are you tempted? And, 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 and when, you, when you think about it, don't set the boundary then right there. Like, okay, this, when I get here, I make this decision, it's bad. So don't set the boundary here. Take like nine steps back. Figure out what got you to that point to make the decision. Think about the environments and the situations, the emotions that lead you to a situation where you're tempted to fall into sexual morality and bring it back. And so one one practical thing in my life, I know that like if I'm alone, that's that's when I'm most tempted. And so I've made this habit of, I I have a friend that I text. Every time I know that that my wife is going to be gone, I'm going to be home alone, I text my, I just say, hey, I'm home alone tonight. I want you to know that. I'm just inviting someone in, just, just so that there's not a chance for this vice to grow. I'm inviting him in. He always texts back. He just says, behave. That's it. And, <laughs> and, and it, it's a helpful thing, but just invite these voices into your conversation, into your life, so that you aren't the only one wrestling with this. Set boundaries. 
And, and that may look like internet filters. It may look like an accountability friend or accountability software. Um, and, and with this, let me just say, for you parents with young kids, if you give your child a mobile device, a phone or a tablet, without any kind of filter, without any kind of accountability, that is incredibly foolish. It is incredibly foolish. Because the average age of first exposure to pornography is now, some argue, is nine years old. And it's happening because of the access that we have to pornography in our pockets. Be wise with what you are putting in your hands and in the hands of your children. Thirdly, express love. And what I mean by that is that the reason, I mean, the reason lust has such power is because it removes love. It removes the other person and thinks of sex and intimacy only in terms of physical activity and desire. And so the way I think we can combat the vice of lust is to be generous with our love towards other people. Be generous with your words towards others. Treat your spouse, your neighbors, your siblings, your friends and classmates and coworkers, treat them with love. See them not as commodities or as people that can provide something for you, whether sexually or otherwise. See them as people made in the image of God who need to be loved. Be generous with your love towards others. Fight the emptiness of lust with the fullness of love expressed in words and actions and service. And part of what that means is just being a good friend. Be a good friend to the people in your life. Don't just treat them as, well, this guy has season tickets to the Chiefs, and so I might hang out with him more. Like, don't, don't treat people as commodities. Treat them as image bearers who need to be loved. Well, as we bring all this to a close, I, I want to say one final thing. While the damage of this vice is largely caused by the flames of the fire, I know also that, that sometimes lust does its worst work in the toxins of the smoke that lingers through our life. That in many ways, this vice, yes, it does great damage in the moment, but it lingers. And, and for some of us, this, this vice, while it may not be as, as palpable and as strong as it once was, we find that its toxins from the smoke continue to blind us, to continue to make us sick. And because of that, I know that this vice, it does some of its worst work in its ongoing shame and the guilt that it brings upon us. And I know that the church in many ways has been complicit in adding to that guilt and adding to that shame and saying, how dare you do this? You're damaged goods. Who could ever love you? This is the worst thing you could possibly do. And what we've done is we have taken a sin that it, and we have essentially said, this is so disgusting. How could God ever love you or forgive you? And we believe that lie and it holds on to us in our hearts. And so what I want us to all hear very clearly today is that the effects and consequences of, of our lust are far-reaching for sure. And, and, and they, they are long-lasting in many ways. And the wounds left over from this vice, either self-inflicted or brought on by someone else, in many ways that's the reality. Some of us, the shame and guilt is not because of something we've done, but because of what has been done to us. And so we feel the wounds of this vice and they linger for years. And we start to believe that who I am has been defined by what I've done or by what has been done to me. And we believe the lies that we are damaged goods. And that saddens me to no end. Because you are not defined by what you've done or what has been done to you. You are defined by what Christ has done for you. What he has accomplished on your behalf. And so what I want us to hear, while these wounds are deep, 
while they long last in our life, what I want us to understand is that the gospel of Jesus and the power he brings in forgiving us and redeeming us, that his love goes far deeper than this vice and that his forgiveness is long lasting well past the time when this vice is put in the grave. The hope we have over this vice is that even though we may think we're defined and marked by what we've done, we are ultimately defined and marked by what Christ has done for us. And so my prayer for all of us is that yes, we would see the inherent goodness of sex as God's designed it, that we would see the the deceptive and illusory nature of the vice of lust, but that we would also see that the goodness of God's design for chastity, for balance, for, for guidelines in this life are for our good and ultimately believe that the gospel is able to redeem and restore all the ways in which we have broken ourselves and broken others. And so as we close, I just want to give us a minute just to pause and reflect, because I realize this is probably heavy for some of us. And so let us just take a minute just to be honest before the Lord, to be in prayer, to lament, to grieve, to confess, to seek forgiveness. I'll close in prayer in a minute, but let's just take some time to be honest before the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are all broken people. Lord, we we see a world that that desperately longs for intimacy. Lord, we we all know we're sexually broken, we're sexually dissatisfied in so many ways. And Lord, while there is much that needs to be addressed in that, Lord, the reason why is because we long for an intimacy with you. We long to be known by you and loved by you. And so, Lord, yes, I do pray that you would bring healing and forgiveness and restoration and hope to all of us in our sexual brokenness. But, Lord, I also pray that you would show us that what we are longing for in our vice of lust is ultimately you, that we want more of you and we want and are looking forward to the day in which you will come and restore all things and that we will see you for who you are and that you will remove all pain and death and sorrow. Lord, would you show us that in our heart's desire, we are ultimately longing for you. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that your gospel of restoration and hope and redemption would bring healing to people now whose brokenness feels so far beyond repair. But may you help us to see that your goodness, your gospel is capable of restoring all of our brokenness a thousand times over. Lord, we find hope and healing in you, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for being here. I know this was not the easiest conversation to have, but it's one that is so important. And I, and I hope that, that through our time together, you have found hope and healing and rescue in the gospel that is far greater than our vice that destroys us. You can stand as we do our benediction. Uh, I want to share a good word for the road from the, the book of Jude. Hear these words as our benediction, as we are the gathered church, as we go to be the scattered church. And that to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.